All right, so we have our Bibles hopefully out. We'll turn to Joshua chapter 1. And uh, we'll start out with a simple question. If I had to, those of you that are familiar with your Bibles, your Old Testament, the book of Joshua, if I were to ask you, what, what quality trait do you associate with Joshua? Is there some quality traits that you would argue are associated with Joshua? Any, anybody? That's right, yes. Donna? Brave, good. Another one? Yes, Barb? Good, faithful, all right? Um, we would perhaps look at Moses and say he's meek, right? And with Joshua... Uh, brave, faithful, those are critical characteristics that I think are appropriate to assign to Joshua. And in fact, if you look at Joshua chapter 1, verse number 6, uh, we have this, these imperatives given directly to Joshua, be strong and courageous. Uh, later on it says, only be strong and very courageous. And uh, to Barb's point, be careful to observe, be faithful to the law of Moses. But uh, this idea of strength and courage uh, comes through very clearly as the need for Joshua. Joshua was about ready to embark on some very dicey business. Uh, he was being called of God uh, as, uh, as the one to fight uh, the holy wars. We would call it, we would borrow a word from our, our uh, Muslims, a jihad, if you will, for lack of a better word. These are Nations who would be put under the ban in the Old Testament, and they were to be exterminated. They were to be uh, uh, removed from the land. And this was the land that God had promised to the nation of Israel. And they were going to go in and, and possess it. They were going to live in houses that they didn't build. They were going to enjoy the fruit of the labor of others as they harvested crops from fields they never planted. And, and this was the goal. This was the promise. This was the... The, the possession that God had promised to the nation of Israel. And Joshua was going to be at the tip of the spear. And it was going to be some messy business. It was going to mean a lot of fighting. It was going to be fighting some very, um, uh, we would call them odd. They're, they're our offspring, or they're our, they're our forefathers. They're our Gentile forefathers, the likes of people like Goliath, you know, Anak, these sons, these, these legendary sons who were, amazing warriors and they were tall and large some of them had six fingers and six toes they were a peculiar lot they were our lot these gentiles he he would have to face all of them uh they were much larger and stronger and and uh he would be going out fighting them fighting them god would also have to give him some peculiar battle plans that that he had to sell to <laughs> his his armies and uh, those were unique, uh, many of them, and have heretofore never been repeated. And I don't think they study them in war college, like, you know, walk around a, a city seven times and then seven more times and blow trumpets. And uh, so Joshua was going uh, to need uh, courage and strength. And, and I want to pick up that theme. We're going we're gonna to exit the book of Joshua for now. We're going to look at Joshua with respect to his preparation. And we're really going to look at the Joshua from the vantage point of the Pentateuch, and really specifically two uh, books in the Pentateuch, Exodus and Numbers. And we're going to begin to uh, understand that, that uh, this idea of strength and courage was not anything new to Joshua. Uh, 
fact of the matter is, is that God had well prepared uh, uh, Joshua. And, and the fact of the matter is, is that Joshua had learned that there is an appropriate place to summon strength and courage. You know, we live in a day and age that is all about summoning strength and courage for interesting things. You know, we're told that it's, we need to summon strength and courage to be who you are or to, you know, to, to come out and, and to tell people. And you need strength and courage. And strength and courage in relationship to those things are, are often lauded and praised. And, and yet those of us who, as Ken mentioned and others, understand that human flourishing doesn't lie in those places, that human flourishing lies in the callings of God in our life. And, and learning to summon strength and courage to pursue the calling of God in our life is the highest and noblest place that we can spend strength and courage upon. And Joshua is going to be called to do that. And he's prepared to do that. So tonight we're going to look at the preparation of Joshua with respect to this idea of being strong and courageous. And the question we want to ask is, are we strong and courageous? And, and probably a little bit more in a nuanced fashion, do we summon strength and courage for the right things in our life? Or the right thing, we could argue. And, and Joshua's, uh, the, the truth that sort of rings through the book of Joshua is that strength and courage summoned to pursue the calling of God in your life is strength and courage always well spent. Always well spent. God has called you to be a wife. God's called you to be a husband. We would even say in this day and age, we're not lost by even saying God's called you to be a man. <laughs> God's called you to be a woman, right? These are the callings of God in your life. You are, you are called to be an employer, an employee, these are God's callings in your life, and God has interests, and God has desires. And, and, and when you summon strength and courage in those arena, trying to apprehend God's desires for you in those arena, you are summoning strength and courage well, my friend. And, and I want us to see that. So, so the first thing we want to, we're going to look at three things. If you're, if you're uh, writing things down, uh, the first thing that God did to prepare Joshua to lead the nation, something that would require strength and courage, is he had to teach Joshua that God is the exclusive hero in the life of the nation and really in the life of anyone sitting under the sound of my voice, that God is the exclusive hero. So kids, if you're taking notes, I mean, that's a great drawing right there. You know, God is the exclusive hero. The second thing that... Um, Joshua's going to have to learn or be reminded of is, is that as a, as a man, in, in his case at this time when we talk about him, as a servant of God in a position, he was going to have to learn that there is always much to learn. God was going to require him to always be in the seat of the learner, that it takes strength and courage to recognize that to believe it, and to live in concert with that. And then our third point tonight is going to be that God prepared Joshua to lead the nation by challenging him to assess his circumstances 
in light of God's revealed word. And folks, that takes strength and courage. That takes strength and courage. So those three things tonight. So our first one uh, is God prepared Joshua to lead the nation of Israel by teaching him that God is the exclusive hero. God is the exclusive hero. Um, Let's take our Bibles and turn over to Exodus chapter 17. Exodus chapter 17. We're going to land in Exodus 17. Um, and while you're turning there, give you a little background. You know, the purpose of Exodus is to celebrate God's heroic graciousness in the deliverance of his chosen people, Israel, from slavery in Egypt. We remember that. But it does a little bit more than that. Uh, it moves from bondage and slavery in Egypt to freedom uh, that the nation would enjoy in covenantal relationship and fellowship with Jehovah. Uh, and this is really the purpose of Exodus, sort of this, this bondage to freedom motif. Um, our particular passage, Exodus 17, finds itself in the beginning of the portion of Exodus that stretches from chapter 15 all the way to the end of the book, chapter 40. So we're kind of in the second half here of, of the book of Exodus. Uh, and it's in these particular chapters that God is heroically going through the process of adopting Israel as his own chosen nation. So from chapter 15 all the way to 40 in Exodus, we're, we're seeing this beautiful uh, it's not always beautiful. Sometimes it's a challenge because of the stubbornness of the hearts of the nation of Israel. But it's God actively adopting this nation as his own. And, um, and then that's what we're, where we have. And then more precisely, as we come down into specifically Exodus chapter 17, we're, we're, we're um, right before the establishment of, of, the, of the Mosaic Covenant. So, so, so we're at a point in the nation's history right before that grand meeting with God at Mount Sinai, right? Where the nation, uh, here, we, they're really not a nation yet. They're not a nation until they come to Sinai. And there God kind of lays out for them, for lack of a better word, their constitution. This is the Mosaic Law. It has three components, civil, ceremonial, and moral. It's a, it's a unified whole, and God is going to, in a, in a profound demonstration of power, uh, uh, invite the nation or these people into national status, into a relationship with him. He's going to be the ruler. This is going to be a theocracy. He's going to be the one who's going to, uh, uh, to dress for battle, we're told. He's the one who's going to be the, the king, if you were. And, and, and those who serve him are mere administrators of this great theocracy, Moses being one of them, Joshua being his servant one day to be one of them as well. Um, so so in, in particularly in our chapter here now, uh, we, we see at the beginning um, this, you know, the typical sort of grumbling or, or need that the nation had. We have quail and manna back in chapter 16. Back in, in here in chapter 17, we have this need for water in verses 1, for, 1 through 7. And then here, specifically, as we come to, to our passage, um, uh, we, we see this, this need for Amalek to be confronted. Okay, and we really pick it up in verse number 8. 
And here we find the name of Joshua being called. Um, um, and it's noteworthy that at the beginning, uh, God is heroically preparing for Israel's future. So here we are at the very beginning of the nation of Israel. And certainly Moses is on hand. But at its very inception, um, God is planning for succession, if you will. Uh, we're told that Fortune 500 companies, when they, when they um, uh, have a brand new CEO, one of his first tasks, what I've been told and read, is he has to develop a succession plan. That's his first task. And it's not until he develops that that he's able then to go about the business of the shareholders and becoming profitable. But they're very interested in that. And here, we, here that's reflected uh, in, in, in God's interest. In other words, God has interests over the arc of time. God has interest in, in, in establishing his reputation in a concerted, consistent, disciplined fashion. And, and we have that here. Um, so let's read these verses. Um, beginning at chapter 8. Then Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose men for us and go out, fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will station myself on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Joshua did as Moses told him and fought against Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. So it came about when Moses held his hand up that Israel prevailed. And particularly, it's not just his hand. He's holding the staff of God up. We would, we would read that um, in, uh, earlier. So it says the staff of God becomes critical. But Moses' hands were heavy. Then they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other. Thus his hands were steady until the sun set. So Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. So in other words, this is something that Joshua is going to have to do later on. Uh, there was some unfinished business with Amalek, and, the, and God had it written down so Joshua wouldn't forget it, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and named it, The Lord is my banner. And he said, The Lord has sworn the Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. And really, that was going to be Joshua's task. He's sort of the nameless um, executor of that grand curse upon Amalek. He was going to be the guy. He was going to be the guy. So as we think of Joshua and his preparation, part of the preparation that is going on in Joshua's life is that he is going to be the tip of the spear of a critical lesson here in this particular passage for the whole of the nation that they all must learn. God, through Moses, required of Joshua to put his faith into action. And, and more importantly that God is always the hero. And that's, think about that. I want you to see if I accurately have assessed this passage. What did it mean for Joshua to practically follow through and live in light that God is always the hero and that God can act heroically? Well, it required some things of Joshua. Joshua, first of all, had to choose men to fight. Uh, you know, this was not a warring nation yet. Certainly this nation had had skirmishes, but it was Joshua's responsibility to go in among the men and, and, and inspire them to join him to fight Amalek. 
Uh, that, that's not an enviable task, I would say. Uh, you may have to talk to mothers of sons and, and, and wives of husbands and, and, and remind them of, of the, the, the faith that we ought to have in, in the, the unseen theocratic ruler, Jehovah. And so his job was to go about the, the business of the practical matters of making sure that the nation uh, uh, goes out and fights Amalek as God had commanded them to do. Uh, that was his responsibility. Um, this short battle, this skirmish, was really the beginning of Israel's holy wars. This is sort of the tip of uh, the history of Israel's holy wars that will come, that Joshua will be responsible for, and, and he's the one who, who leads it out. Uh, so not only does Joshua have to choose men to fight, but Joshua has to go out and fight. I mean, that's no fun matter. I mean, there is glory to be had in battle, but it's an ugly thing. Uh, it, it, uh, excuse the euphemism, war is hell is true. And just because you were fighting for the God of heaven didn't make war any less hellish. It was ugly business, and it was terrible business, and it required blood, sweat, and certainly tears as some of your comrades lay on the ground killed by Amalek. Rationalizing, well, how does this, what's going on, you know? So that becomes Joshua's responsibility. And although we're told that Joshua overwhelms Amalek and, and his people with the edge of the sword, we, we read that in our passage, what is critically essential is that Joshua and the rest of the nation understand that all the glory goes to God. Joshua had to know that. If Joshua was going to continue to be God's man, to fight for the God of heaven, he had to realize that God has no equal, he tolerates no rival, and the issue in this particular battle was as long as the staff of God, and think of it, God had chosen a staff, a wooden piece of stick, and he placed his name on that staff. And as long as Moses held up God and his name and his glory, Joshua would prevail. And everybody who fought in that battle knew it. I mean, Joshua's great and everything, but God is amazing. Joshua had to learn that critical lesson. That God has no equal, and he's going to tolerate no rival. And that whatever victories Joshua would enjoy in the future would be a result of God's power as the king of the theocracy. Not Joshua. Joshua was an instrument. You know, that idea of, of God instilling in, in a stick his name, and that being required to be held up. You know, you know Aaron and Hur didn't feel bad for Moses. I mean, they may have a little bit. But Aaron and her longed for the glory of God to remain high and lifted up. That was what was essential. That was key. That was what was required. You know, I think of in the New Testament, we're told that we have this treasure in an earthen vessel so that it can be demonstrated to this world that, that the power is of God and it is not of us. Not many wise, not many strong are chosen. 
It's the foolish things of this world that confound the wise. A little stick, <laughs> a staff that God had given to Moses to be lifted up, to wipe out Amalek, Amalek, the son of Anak. These were the wild ones. These were the tall, crazy ones. These were your, off, your, your fathers and mine, these crazy Gentiles. All glory goes to God. So whatever God commissioned as a means of agency of power to Moses, a staff, to the Christian, the spirit of God inside of them, the people of God had to know that victory came from God alone, him and him alone. The glory exclusively goes to him. God requires of some to lead in that conviction and bear the weight more personally and profoundly. Joshua was required to bear that weight more personally and more profoundly. He was the one that had to be out there convincing mothers to give up their sons, wives to give up their husbands, pressing their heart and soul to the truth of God and his word and his glory, and then out there actually doing the task of killing Amalekites. And at times the battle didn't go well, and it was hard. But thankfully, because God was high and lifted up, and this was Joshua's responsibility, God requires certainly that of some who lead to feel it more personally, to feel it more profoundly. Joshua learned that God is always the hero. You know, that comes with the corollary truth that we are not. You can't, you can't affirm one and not affirm the other. They both have to be the conviction of your soul. It's critical. God is, and I am not. And I am not. Joshua had to come to that. It is our task to decide if we're going to work in concert with the hero's values and interests in our lives or not. We're either going to be the good guy or the bad guy. We're either going to be the protagonist and work in concert with the hero or we're not. And some of you, as and as protagonists are going to have to do so more, more deeply and more profoundly as leaders. God may lay upon some of you young men. Some of our elders already feel that. Some of you young men, God may call you to that. And you're going to need to be, have strength and courage to, 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 to step up into that and know that when you summon strength and courage for that task, you're spending your strength and courage wisely and for the right thing. You become, you stand in the long line of Joshua's. You take up your responsibility before the Lord. Secondly, God prepared Joshua to lead the nation by reminding him there is always much to learn. We often talk about here sitting in the seat of the learner, always having that humble uh, disposition that I've got to learn, right? I mean, if, if, if we are a disciple-making body, if we're to teach all things that God, Jesus has commanded, knowing he's always with us, we have an infinite subject matter that we're always trying to communicate to, to finite people. And that's a lifelong task of learning. And along the way, by the way, we're required to live its implications out in our life personally. So, we, so we're submitted to this message we're trying to transfer to each other. This is amazing. This is, this is a challenging reality. And, and the, the reality of it is, you know, we, we don't, we don't teach when we finally learned it all. 
the uncomfortable truth is we're teaching as we're still learning. And the foibles are apparent and evident, and it's painful to apologize. It's embarrassing. It's, it, you know, our pride gets struck, and, 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 and beloved, I want you to know it's good for us. <laughs> I want you to know that. Joshua faced that same reality in Numbers. In Numbers chapter 11, let's turn over there. Exodus, Numbers. No, I'm sorry, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Man, I said, where is it? Why is Leviticus there? I just said it's supposed to be Numbers. It's amazing how it didn't change. Numbers chapter 11. You know, the, number, uh, the book of Numbers giving us a little context here as well. We, we tried to develop that a little bit in Exodus. Numbers chapter 11. Numbers, the book of Numbers really covers a time of 39 years in the nation's history. Um, the purpose of the book is primarily to show how God heroically dealt with the Israelites as they anticipated entrance into the promised land. You know, having already accepted the terms of the Sinai covenant, that massive moment where they... They went into covenantal relationship with Jehovah, having that in the, in the, uh, uh, in, in the rearview mirror now in the book of Numbers. Um, uh, the content specifically of the author of Numbers chooses the content to teach what life was to be like in this reciprocal relationship between uh, the God of the covenant and, and his people. That this, this relationship, and Numbers sort of unpacks it. It chronicles the destruction of the older generation. Remember them? They were unwilling to have the faith to go into the land. And it chronicles their destruction uh, uh, and, and, and their, their wandering in the wilderness and the preparation of the new generation uh, as they look forward to entering into the land. Uh, numbers, in effect, then, compels obedience to Jehovah by negatively reminding the young generation of the wrath of God, and he will be true to his word. Jehovah means, I keep my word, both positively and negatively, and he will keep it. Uh, so, so Numbers serves to, to, to remind us and to compel obedience uh, that negatively the wrath of God will fall when the covenant is breached, but positively to encourage the young generation to trust the promises of Jehovah as they follow him in to take their, to take their possession. Specifically, in our chapter, is found the broader section that begins back in chapter 1 and goes all the way through chapter 25. And we're sitting here in Numbers 11, so we're kind of in the middle a little bit. Uh, in this section, the author of Numbers deals with the experiences of the older generation. So in 1 to 25, we're dealing with that old generation. Uh, so you can imagine it's not happy, 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 right? It's not all uh, sunshine and roses in the first part of the book of Numbers. Um, chapters 26 through 36 will deal with the prospects of the younger generation in the land, a little bit, a little bit better section. Uh, but they have some challenges as well. And our specific chapter begins a section dedicated to sort of reporting this cycle of rebellion, trying to get back, 
and God's good graces, and then eventually death uh, for the old generation that runs all the way through chapter 20. So in, 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 you know, in concert with this theme or this idea, our chapter begins uh, uh, with the people complaining to Moses about all kinds of things, culminating in verse number uh, 14, where Moses just throws up his hands and he says, I alone am not able to carry all these people because it is too burdensome for me, God. <laughs> what have you called me to do? So Moses is at the end of his rope. Uh, so Moses' complaint gives rise to the selecting of 70 elders to help Moses bear the burden of judging and caring for the people. God demonstrated his appointment of these men by a one-time demonstration of what I would call the theocratic anointing. Uh, the Holy Spirit descends upon these 70 and they prophesy in a way that was uncommon. And in so doing, God identifies these, particularly these particular 70 men as being men who will help bear the burden of what the theocratic king requires of there is no longer be a single administrator. There now would be at least 71 administrators to take care of this motley crew. And Moses is talking in the terms of 600,000 to judge them rightly and to help them along their way. Um, uh, uh, so, so I would argue this is a theocratic anointing. We don't want to confuse the Spirit's work in the Old Testament with what we enjoy in the church. Uh, we see the Holy Spirit coming on and coming off in the Old Testament. Uh, and that is simply a, a, a function when you are the God of heaven and you are the king, you are the president, you have the power to endue people with special power to execute the tasks of the kingdom, right? That's what was going on in the Old Testament. And, and when they need it, they got it. When they no longer need it, it's no longer with them. So it's not a function of salvation. It's not a function of even sanctification. It's a function of administrating, helping Moses administrate uh, what God wants to have happen in his kingdom. So we don't want to confuse that with what we enjoy, spirit indwelling. Uh, uh, it's a very different thing. Um, but all we're simply trying to say is Moses complained, 70 elders, and now we drop into verse 26, and we pick up the story here. Um, uh, let's pick it up in 24. So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. Also, he gathered the 70 men of the elders of the people and stationed them around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him. And he took the spirit who was upon him and placed him upon the 70 elders. And when the spirit rested upon them, they prophesied, but they did not do it again. So this was just simply an evidence that these were the guys. Verse 26. But two, but two men had remained in the camp. So the 70 were outside of the camp. Long story, the, the, the tabernacle was taken outside of the camp, and uh, that was for purposes of judgment. And um, Anyway, uh, but two men had remained in the camp. The name of one was Eldad, and the name of the other was Medad. And the spirit rested upon them. Now, they were among those who hadn't registered. Just a quick note about that. We know that these are not the 70. They're already accounted for, right? But they're noted as being men who were registered. The Hebrew word is simply they were written about. 
And they had been identified probably as elders in the clan or officers of some degree within their clan. Uh, so they, although they are not one of the 70, they certainly are men of renown, men of reputation, men who were registered, who were on a list of being leaders. But they had not gone out to the tent. And they prophesied in the camp. So a young man ran and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And then here's our guy, verse 28. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, the attendant of Moses from his youth, said, Moses, my Lord, restrain them. But Moses said to him, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. Then Moses returned to the camp, both he and the elders of Israel. So we have a little sting here for Joshua. All right, we have a little, a little bit of a, a public rebuke. Uh, and, and certainly, that, that's a bit of a challenge. So, so what, what, what's going on here? Um, uh, so El, Eldad and Medad, uh, we've already mentioned, these are those who had been registered. What appears to be the challenge here is uh, this, this word that Moses used to be jealous. Uh, uh, the Hebrew word can be used to mean zealous, so that would be sort of a positive view of it. Uh, but the context demonstrates that this is not a positive uh, use of the Hebrew word here. It is certainly jealousy. Um, and it's being used here in its negative sense. Um, so, so, so Joshua had this envy, this, this jealousy for Moses' sake, or some, some commentaries would argue that it may even be for some other reason, given Moses' question. Are you jealous for my sake? Um, so he's questioning Joshua's motive, Joshua's motive. Not, on, not knowing, not given the details, I think we can at least understand from the text that the effort of Joshua to protect Moses' prerogative as a leader by stopping these men who were in the camp from prophesying, uh, he had to learn that it was wrong-headed. And there's a reason why it was wrong-headed. Joshua needed to learn that Jehovah is in charge. Jehovah is the king. Jehovah is in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. That's what Joshua had to learn, even though it may not, you know, fit into the schema of Joshua and, and, and of the 70 necessarily, that Jehovah was in charge. It is true that structure and prerogative of leadership is important in an organization, but we would argue the nation of Israel was a peculiar organization. You could not visibly see your leader. He was everywhere present all the time. The leader was not Moses. It was the Spirit of God. Moses was simply an administrator. The lesson that seemed to be needed was that the Spirit of God was indispensable, not Moses. Moses was very dispensable. Joshua by extension, is expendable. The only necessary individual in the theocracy was the king, was the spirit of God. And Joshua needed to learn that. That was going to become very, very important. A nuanced lesson for sure. Joshua needed to trust that when it was a true manifestation of the spirit of the Lord's directive, it would never have a negative impact 
on the designs of the king for the nation of Israel. He had to learn that. He had to learn that. The lesson that is critical at this point is that it was not Moses who was indispensable for Israel. It was the spirit of the Lord. From Moses' perspective, what did he say? I wish that all of God's people enjoyed a theocratic anointing. All of them. And would take their place in governing themselves with respect to this amazing relation, this covenantal relationship that we have with our theocratic leader. I wish that. And so should you, Joshua. Certainly foreshadows the millennium in the new covenant when that's going to happen to the whole of the nation. And certainly we foreshadow that reality because each of us enjoy the Spirit of God. We say these words, you are a priest believer. You have soul liberty. We have no schema of, of, of religious cult practice that requires you to go through before you can get into the presence of God. No, you directly go to the presence of God and you do have the capacity to maintenance your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Certainly not in the way that we're talking about the millennium yet, but we certainly foreshadow that, dear family, dear church. And in that reality, we're constantly learning. So Joshua had to get a little bit of, you know, a little bit of, yeah. He had to remember authority. He had to remember where it rests and where it lay. Finally, tonight, God prepared Joshua to lead the nation by challenging him to assess circumstances in accordance with God's revealed word. Assessing our circumstances by the dictates of God's revealed word requires strength and courage. All of these things require strength and courage. All of these things, beloved, know this from young and old, are, 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 when we summon strength and courage, it's well placed. It's well worth the effort when we're pursuing God's calling in our life. Absolutely. It's well worth the effort. So he has to assess his circumstances, not by what he sees visually, but by what God has revealed to be true. And this is the famous spy incident. Numbers chapter 14. We really haven't moved out of the first half of Numbers. We're still in this challenging time dealing with the older generation, uh, this cycle of, of rebellion, sort of trying to get back, and that kind of going up and up and up and up and up and, up and down until it's finally their death. They, they die. They, they, their shoes never wear out, but they die in the wilderness. Uh, there's never quite the final commitment to, to follow Jehovah. And, and so we're still in that sort of, of, of pattern here. In Numbers chapter 14, uh, uh, verses 7 uh, through 9. Here, let's read it quickly. Um, and they spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through to spy out is exceedingly good land. This is Joshua and Caleb. If the Lord is pleased with us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they will be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. But all the congregation decided to stone the two of them. They would not have that faith-filled report. Then the glory of the Lord intervened. Thankfully, God is the king, and he stops the nation from stoning his two faithful witnesses, for which we can be grateful. 
And uh, we're thankful, again, for God's heroic activity. He's an amazing hero. He's always heroic. He can do nothing but be heroic. That's an amazing thing to me. I love that. And the glory of the Lord appeared. Ooh, the tent of the meeting and all the people, it's all the people, the sons of Israel. So we have this faithful report. Um, uh, if we had time, we, would, we, would, we could look at uh, uh, what, what the nation's assessment of the task of conquering the land, uh, one through four, back in chapter 13, we we're familiar with the idea that all the spies come back and, and they say, oh yeah, it's flowing with milk and honey, all right. It's an amazing land. <laughs> so what God has said is true, but Anak is there. The Canaanites, these crazy Gentiles are there. You know, they burn their children. They have six fingers and toes, and they're ten feet tall. We're like grasshoppers. And oh, yeah, the fruit's nice. It's amazing, just like God said it is. But to try to get it is insanity. Insanity. This was the witness of ten. Uh, ten. We have Joshua's assessment. We read it here. Thankfully, the Lord intervened. And, 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 and I, I, I worded my point that we have to assess our circumstances by the revealed word of God. Well, how, did, how did Joshua, where do I get that? Well, chapter 13, go back there in, in, in the first, first few verses. Then the Lord said to Moses, saying, send out for yourself men so that they may spy out the land of Canaan. And then what did it say there? A short little phrase. Not a lot of blood bluster about it. Not a lot of pomp and circumstance. It's just the fact of the matter. Which I am what? I am going to give to you. Period. There's the revealed will. But how? But why? But, you know, you can just imagine all of the anxiousness of the nation and all of the unanswered questions. And folks, I, I have all of those in my own life. I know that. I know that when when it's my turn to have cancer, when it's my turn to have financial reversal, when it's my turn, when it's my turn, I have all these unanswered questions. But I know in the end of the day, even if death finally takes me, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's the final word on the matter. That is how I, the truth that I use to assess my circumstances in the end of the day, right? God, 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 we'll deal with the details, don't you worry. Providence, sovereignty, we delight in those realities. Look at sovereignty as God's ruling over the affairs of who we are. And I look at so providence as like, have, have you ever seen a thoroughbred? I, we had a, I, I went to a, a I, I, I counsel, well, I wasn't counselor, I was a maintenance man in an all-girls camp. Uh, for a year or a summer. And, and they, they didn't bring in thoroughbreds by any stretch of the imagination for these girls. But, but there were a few horses that were by far and away much better than the blind <laughs> nags that were out there. But, but, you know, these horses are strong. You know, and in the morning when they're hungry and they want to get out, they're kicking. They're, you know, they're wanting to get out of those stalls. And I look at Providence as sort of a, a thoroughbred. And, and every morning, right, you know, I'm saying, okay, Lord, help me. You know, I, I want to be faithful. I want to love. I want to love God. I want to love others. 
And he says, all right, Kent, get up on that horse. <laughs> so here we go. We mount the horse of providence every morning, and we just grab onto those reins, and we go, and we go shooting out of the, the stall, and we, we just hope. Well, we know that God's good providence will be with us. He's promised us that even unto the end of the age. And Joshua had to learn to assess his circumstances in that way. So Joshua did not just drop into leadership like we may think he did. He was well prepared by God. Uh, he, was, he, he, he had gotten used to spending, summoning courage and strength on the right thing. The calling of God in his life. And all that that would require of him. He was strong and courageous, but he was going to need a lot more of that as he faced the, the awful realities of holy war that would be his. Um, Joshua was no stranger, as we've mentioned, to that strength and courage. It was, he was groomed by Jehovah under Moses' tutelage to summon strength and courage for all the right reasons. Strength and courage to live out the truth that God is in is the exclusive hero in life, strength and courage to always remain in the seat of the learner, always remembering that there's much more to learn, and finally, strength and courage to assess circumstances of life according to the revealed truth of God's word. These are matters worthy of summoning courage and strength. You know, we live in a day, we've already mentioned, where courage and strength seems to be wasted at times in, in, in places that are inappropriate. But know this, young person, middle-aged and older, Summoning strength and courage for God's calling in your life is always, always well spent. May I encourage you with that truth. May God bless us as we seek to try to live these realities out in our life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for Joshua. We thank you for uh, your kind preparation. Uh, this was a man who would be required, like Moses, to understand realities and truths from heaven uh, in, in a much more personal, profound way. And Lord, the church is set up much the same way. You gift people uh, for leadership, and, and, and uh, they have to believe, yes, but really believe. They have to, they have to uh, walk, yes, but, but really walk. And they have to uh, more personally endure. And, 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 and we appreciate that you have taught us through the life of Joshua that it, it, we are doing well to spend strength and courage on those things. So, Lord, help us, we pray. Encourage our church family as we go this week. May God be praised. It's in his precious name we pray these things. Amen. All right, that ends the... Wait, is there a child that wants to come up real quick and share with us anything that they drew or learned? Anybody? Or a parent want to stand up and speak for their child? No? All right, well, that takes strength and courage, doesn't it? And maybe the Lord will help us with that, all right? You are dismissed. Lord bless you. <clears throat>